Good morning, Redeemer. How's everyone doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. I can't complain. Um, So, last week we uh, had the opportunity to look at the story of the book of Psalms, um, the story of David, the story of Israel, and what we learned from that story is that it's a story of sorrow that lands in resurrection ultimately, and even thinking about the huddle that was just shared about, the Crossway Chapel, and what was talked about that week, this idea of together in the storm, and hearing from Tim and and Pat, I just can't help but wonder, did God place us in the Psalms for a reason? Did God have us travel through this book for a particular purpose so that we might learn how to actually walk with one another in the storm, that we would learn how to be together in the storm. And that's precisely what the Psalms teach us. They teach us how to cry out to God how to bring our sorrows, our pain, our suffering to him in a way, knowing full well that he hears us. So I want to to both encourage us and challenge us to, to be the very thing that the Psalter's calling us to be, and that is the people of God representing him in this world and representing him to one another, right? Being those hands and feet as we travel with one another, as we sojourn, as as Peter calls us exiles in this world, Lord. Um, I don't know why I said Lord there. It was weird. I felt like I was praying for a second. But as as we are like traveling as exiles, longing for the day when we will see him face to face. Like that's our heart. So with that, let's go to prayer and then we'll jump into where we're gonna be this morning. Father in heaven. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for how you love us, Father. And I pray now that as we look into your word, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, that you would draw us near to yourself. Help us to to understand. um, Help us to walk with you. And um, Lord, be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, we are looking at the genre of the Psalms. A a little story, back in 1997, a movie came out called Life is Beautiful. Has anyone ever seen that? It was an Italian movie with English subtitles. Now, when I was younger, confession, I was really into romantic comedies. Um, I was, I was like, I, I loved like Meg Ryan movies. And, um, and I, don't, I just did. I thought they were fun, right? So in my brain, I had no idea what Life is Beautiful was about. And so I went into this movie having no clue how to watch it. And so it starts off, if you remember the movie, very funny. There's this, you know, Italian guy that's chasing after this girl, and, and he's kind of goofy and, and silly, and, and he's making all these, like, funny sort of whatever, right? It's, it's kind of hilarious, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh, this is great. This is like a romantic comedy. And then all of a sudden, Nazis show up. And I was like, whoa, what's going on? Like, What's happening? This isn't fun anymore. This isn't a fun movie. And if, and if you remember that movie, if you've seen that movie, it ends horrifically sad. And, and there's this redemptive thread that runs through it, but it's such a sad movie. The problem I had, that when I approached that movie, I had the wrong set of lenses on. 
I was watching that movie as though it were a romantic comedy when in fact it was a very dramatic story of a father and son in the midst of Nazi Germany, right? And so this idea of genre is so massively important when we are looking at any work, especially when we're looking at the Bible. So Thinking about genre from like this meta level, the book of Psalms falls into a category. It's poetry. And, and a couple of words about poetry. Um, Percy Shelley, she's an English romantic poet. I actually think I have a slide for this. She says, poetry lifts the veil from the hidden beauty of the world and makes familiar objects be as if they were not familiar. Another quote from the movie Dead Poets Society says, we don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race and the human race is filled with passion. Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life, but poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. Poetry's, poetry's massive. Poetry is this thing that tugs at our heart. And the question I kept on working through in my mind, like, why is God using poetry? Like, why doesn't he just give us a list? He gives us many lists, but why poetry? And in in thinking through this over the last week and over some time, poetry forces us to slow down. Poetry forces us to grapple with stuff in a way that just narrative or a letter or a list just doesn't do. The arts kind of do that, right? They, they tug at our heart in a way that no other medium tugs at it. And, and that's the beauty of God in that he wants to communicate with us, not just through our brains, not just through our minds, not just logically, but he wants to communicate to us through our heart. And he uses the medium of poetry to tug at the very thing that, that moves us. When thinking about biblical poetry in particular, Tremper Longman, an Old Testament scholar, says it like this. He says, the point is that poetry appeals more directly to the whole person than prose does. It stimulates our imaginations, arouses our emotions, feeds our intellects, and addresses our wills. More than this, poetry is pleasurable. It is attractive to read, and even more so to read aloud or sing. Jesus cares about the details of our life, right? We don't just watch a movie to get to the end. We actually want to enjoy the whole movie. I don't fast forward through the entire album of Sgt. Pepper's because I want to listen to every single piece of it because it's beautiful, it's poetic, as opposed to some of you listen to podcasts and, and maybe some of you put them on double speed. Like I listen to podcasts on double speed because I'm not so much concerned with how they're conveying and I just want to know what they're saying. But poetry forces us to slow down. The last quote I want to read is from C.S. Lewis and I don't have a slide for it, but he says, most emphatically, the Psalms must be read as poems as lyrics with all the licenses and all the formalities, the hyperboles, the emotional rather than logical connections, which are proper to lyric poetry. They must be read as poems if they are to be understood. And I think what he's getting at there is 
you got to slow down when you read the Psalms. you got to take your time. you got to chew on every single piece of it because it's not just there to convey information. It's not just there to be this logical discourse, but rather it's there to tug at something within us. This morning, we're going to not only talk about poetry as a genre, but we're also going to talk about the genres within poetry. Um, think about it like this, right? There's different types of music in the world, right? We have, we have rock music, we have classical music, we have hip-hop, we have jazz, we have country. And even within those genres of music, uh, within, the, within the category of rock, right, we have, we have love songs, we have breakup songs, we have political songs, we have heavy metal, we have grunge, we have classic rock. Like, even within categories, there are subcategories, and, and as we recognize those categories, it enables us to better understand what we're looking at. Like, I'm not going to listen to classical in the same way I'm going to listen to heavy metal. I'm just not going to do it. Because it, it requires a different mindset. It requires a different lens. And the book of Psalms is set up just like that. There are different categories or genres of Psalms within the entire book. Some of those categories are hymns of praise, thanksgiving psalms, laments, kingship psalms, wisdom psalms, and messianic psalms. This morning, we're going to look at what Old Testament scholar Mark Futado calls the big three. We're going to look at hymns of praise, thanksgiving, and laments. My goal this week is to write up a blog post on imprecatory psalms, which are those psalms that cast curses on people, because I thought that, like, I don't know, that's something that is confusing, and I thought it would be helpful maybe to put a little bit of information out there on what those particular psalms mean, what they're used for, and how we as followers of Jesus can use those psalms, if we are supposed to use those psalms at all. But with that, let's jump into the first category of psalms, and those are the hymns of Praise. I'm going to quote Tremper Longman again because he's just a great psalm scholar. He says, The psalmist pulls out all the stops in his rejoicing of God's faithfulness. And that the single most important reason for praise given by the psalmist is certainly that the Lord has delivered Israel out of distress. He has redeemed her from her enemies. So basically, this is like the fireworks spectacular of, of psalms. And, and, and God's not fooling around. And, and the psalmists aren't fooling around. They want everyone to know who their God is, what he's done, and why they're so excited about it. Right? Who their God is, what he's done, and why they're so excited about it. These particular psalms were used in like the public gathering of God's people, similar to when we are gathered together as a church and we're singing to God and we're singing those songs that aren't the ones that are those cries of lament, the it is well with my soul songs, which I love. These are the excited songs, right? These are the ones that we are just hands in the air. We're proclaiming God's faithfulness. We're saying, amen, amen, Jesus saved me. Those types of Psalms. And these particular Psalms have a structure to them. They start out with a call to praise, the reason why God should be praised, and then an additional and concluding call to worship. Right? A call to worship, the reason why we're worshiping, and then a final concluding worship. So turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 111. We're going to look at an example of this particular category of Psalms. And we're not going to spend a ton of time because we're trying to give these broad brushstrokes because we're still introducing the book of Psalms, but I want to give us categories for what we're looking at. So Psalm 111, it starts off like this. It says, praise the Lord right there. 
right? That should give us an idea of what we're looking at. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. So this is this communal sort of psalm. In, in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them, full of splendor. So, so here we have the reason why, God, why God's people are worshiping him. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them, full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever, right? That's worth celebrating. That's worth singing about, that his righteousness doesn't stop, it keeps going. There's no end to the righteousness of God. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. And for those of us who are sitting in a world surrounded by pain, surrounded by struggle, knowing that the Lord is gracious and merciful and that his righteousness endures forever brings to us a sense of hope that we have something to cling to. It's worth celebrating. It's worth lifting our hands in praise because we're looking at who God is. He's a big deal. He's the covenant-keeping God. He's what the Hebrew scriptures call Yahweh. And that name wasn't even allowed to be uttered by the people of the Old Testament. And sometimes we just throw it around, but we need to, we need to step back and remember who are we worshiping? And these psalms of praise, they give us a category and they give us a picture into who we're dealing with. We're dealing with God Almighty, whose righteousness endures forever, who spoke creation into existence, who sent his son Jesus to die for us. Man, he's worth celebrating. He's worth a fireworks spectacular bigger than what you see on the Hudson River, right? He's God. He goes on. The psalmist goes on in verse 5. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Don't, don't pass over the fact that he remembers his covenant forever. As we read this psalm um, on, on this side of the resurrection, we know that we stand in the midst of the new covenant, the one that circumcises our hearts, the one that places the spirit of God within us, and that's the covenant that he remembers forever, forever. There's no end to it. Those of us who have put our faith in Christ regardless of our circumstances, can cling to the promises of God, can cling to this everlasting covenant. Verse 6, he has shown his people the power of his works. In, in giving them the inheritance of the nations, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. We've got to slow down as we read these words. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. And then he concludes with this word of praise, right? His praise endures forever. 
That's our God who saved us, who called us out of captivity. And, and for the Hebrews who were reading these Psalms, as they're sitting there in, in exile or, or without Solomon's temple to gaze at, what are they being called to remember? What sort of redemption story is in their mind? They're, they're, they're being transferred back to the Exodus story where they were enslaved and, and Yahweh brings them out. And so the hope they have as they're sitting in exile is that our God's going to do it again. He's going to do it again. And he does. He brings them back into the land. And even though it wasn't as exciting as it was under the years of Solomon, ultimately that's pointing to a, a, a bringing back into the land that transform, transforms into this idea that we are brought back into fellowship with God. Because remember, as we discussed last week, it, it wasn't so much about the, the physical structure of the temple. It wasn't so much about the land. Those things were pointing somewhere else. They were pointing toward one whom we now know is Jesus of Nazareth who came to die on our behalf. Psalms of praise, hymns of praise call us to scream our heads off in excitement about our God. The way we would scream and yell at a football game or whatever sport comes to mind or at a concert, God's like, like yeah, that's cool, but... but but even that's pointing to something bigger. Right? Even the things that we look at in this world are pointing to something more valuable and more important. A technical thing I want to just point out that as you're reading through the Psalms, and I hope some of you are taking that challenge to read through some of the Psalms every day to kind of travel with us through this book, that, that within poetry, there's, there's a literary tools used to kind of convey information. And, and what the Psalms use is this thing called parallelism where two ideas are kind of put together. And the different types of parallelism, for those of you who want the technical definition, there is this idea of synonymous parallelism, where two lines are saying the same thing in different ways. And then there's this idea of antithetic or contrasting parallelism, where there's like a but in there, where it's showing the opposite. And then there's this idea of progressive parallelism, where as the lines go, they're actually building on each other. They're getting bigger and bigger and, and kind of drawing to a point. So those are just some technical things. If you want to jot that down, great. If not, no worries, not a big deal. I won't be offended too much, but we'll see. The next, um, the next category of psalms is the Thanksgiving psalm. So flip with me to Psalm 138. The Thanksgiving psalm is similar to that of a hymn of praise, but it's actually looking specifically at an event or something that happened that the psalmist is giving, giving thanks for. So let's read through Psalm 138. It starts like this. It says, I give you thanks, O Lord. And right there, there's a hint, right? What kind of psalm are we looking at? A Thanksgiving psalm because he begins, I give you thanks. So that's a clue to kind of let us know what we're dealing with. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart before the gods. I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So he starts out with this expanded introduction where he declares his intentions to thank God. I give thanks, O Lord. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Where does he do it? Before the gods, I sing your praise, which is a whole nother confusing conversation. What gods? What is he talking about? We're not going to go there today, but maybe one day. 
And then he starts explaining what he's giving thanks for. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increase. So he's telling us what he's thankful for. He's thankful again, right? It's so important that we recognize what the psalmist is thankful for. At first, it's the character of God. It's who he is. And, and those of us who, who are praying people, what anchors our prayers? It's the confidence in who God says he is. He's a covenant-keeping God. His steadfast love, his, what, what the Hebrew calls it, chesed love. I got the, got the thing going there. You heard that chesed love, right? It's a great word, and it means covenant faithfulness, loyalty, like unbreaking devotion is the kind of idea that we're talking about when we see those words. And that's what the psalmist is thankful for. And, and mind you, where are they as they're reading these words? They're in exile, and they're thanking God for his, his covenant-keeping love. Where are we? We're in exile. We're sojourning. We are not yet home. And God calls us to remember who he is. Because how easy it is to forget as we gaze around this world. And, and sometimes I think we, we, we zoom out too far. Right? We can say, like, man, the world's a mess. Like, what's happening overseas and what's happening in our political arena and, and what's happening? But it's like, what's happening in my own life? What's happening in the life of my friends and my family, of my church? And we start to say, like, God, what? Okay. Okay. I got to remember who you are. I don't feel like you are keeping your covenant right now. I don't feel like you are this steadfast God, but, but you remind us that that's in fact who you are. And that's so important that we wrap our minds around that. Like, it doesn't always appear to be as such. In fact, there are times where we are completely devastated in the midst of our circumstances. And God calls us to remember. But what I think is so cool about the Psalms is that these were given to the communities to sing. These were given to the people of God, not the person of God, the people of God. So oftentimes what needs to happen is that maybe while I'm sitting here wondering, where are you, God? The people of God have a responsibility to come around me and remind me of his covenant faithfulness. That's that whole together in the storm thing that, that, that the pastors talked about in Colorado, that, that if we're going to be doing this sort of thing, if we're going to be doing church, then, then something needs to happen. We need to actually come around one another. We need to lift one another up. We need to enter in, right? If you're in a pit and you're struggling and you're trying to get out, what we're called to do as the church is to jump in the pit with them, to be with them. And sometimes, I actually think more often than not, we don't have the answer. We don't have the answer. But what we do bring to the table is the presence of God. We bring to the table the presence of God. 
So in the midst of the pit, I might not even have a shovel. But where I go, the Spirit of God goes. So I need to jump in with those who are around me. And be the hands and feet of Jesus that wraps our arms around those who are hurting. We're going to talk about lament for for about 20 minutes, if I have time. And we're going to talk about lament longest. And it's actually funny, right? As I go through hymns of praise, as I go through thanksgiving, I keep on going to suffering. I keep on going to lament. Because let's be honest. Isn't that our story? Isn't that our story? And woe to us who are not willing to jump into the pit with one another. Let's keep going in this particular psalm. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks. Verse 4. Uh, verse 3, excuse me. On the day I called, you answered me, and strength of soul you increased. Verse 4. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. If God regards the lowly, man, we better regard the lowly. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. The Lord fulfills his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. And here the psalmist is, is almost calling God out saying, don't go back on who you said you are. Don't go back on who you said you are. And there's times where we are sitting there wondering, God, where are you? And and the Psalms give us permission to call out to God, say, no, God, don't go back on who you said you are. Please don't go back on who you said you are. You made promises. Be with me. Bring us comfort. Bring us peace. You might not resolve the situation, but oh, Lord, in the midst of it, please be with me. And that's kind of what we're called to. We're called to be with one another. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the struggle, that's where we're called to be. Jesus entered into the suffering of this world. And I think what's so beautiful about the story of Jesus is that, yes, he became a human. He could have been all kinds of humans. He chose to be an ancient Near Eastern Jew in the midst of an oppressed people under the thumb of Rome. And he chose to hail from Nazareth, a backwoods town that nobody had any regard for. Jesus didn't just like dance around the pit. Man, he got in and he dug even deeper and started pouring dirt on top of himself. That's the kind of savior we have. I mean, he's in the pit, like neck deep, head deep, like where he's, no, he's all the way in because he died for us. And Jesus tells us that if you are to follow me, you need to pick up what? Your cross. Which, which means that there's something about the story of humanity that is marked by suffering. Everyone's story is marked by suffering. The only difference for the Christian is that it's marked by suffering with a trajectory toward hope. And I started thinking about this last night. I'm, I'm reading through my sermon and, and I had this aha moment where that 
this, this idea of, of suffering, this idea of pain, and I'm thinking about poetry in particular because we're looking at the Psalms, we're looking at poetry, and, and, and I start thinking like, oh my goodness, this is the story of the human heart. This is our story. It's, it's pain, it's suffering, which is why most of us probably prefer to listen to yesterday rather than she loves you. She loves you is a great song, but it doesn't move you. Yesterday moves you. It moves you because that's who we are, right? Think about, you know, for those of you who are younger here or for those of you who are older, think back to when you were younger, when you broke up with someone, what did you do? Did you listen to happy songs? No, we all listen to those mixtapes. That's like a, it's a little box and there's some sort of tape in it and it makes music, it's wonderful. But those mixtapes or playlists that we listen to, we're sad because we wanted to feel the feelings. We want to feel the feelings. It's how we're made. Yeah, don't get me wrong. We love to jump up and down to She Loves You. It's fun, right? No one wants to sing sad songs at a wedding. But man, the sad songs move us because it's who we are. And especially for us who have been brought into union with Christ, brought into union with the man of sorrows, how much more do we resonate with the lament? And how much more do we need to think about this, that as we are to be those who lament, how we need to step into the world of those who are lamenting. And woe to us if we are at arm's length with those who are struggling. It's hard to go to the funeral, right? That's hard. No one likes it. But to remove yourself from it is in a sense to remove yourself from the presence of God, right? Because what you do to the least of these, you do unto me. And I, and I can't help but think of the, the, the counter to that. What you don't do to the least of these, you don't do to me. And so when we hold suffering at arm's length, we're holding Jesus at arm's length, in a sense. And God's pushing us into that world. So, so we're going to transition into this idea of lament, even though that's been kind of where we've been heading the entire time. And we're going to look at Psalm 13, I think. Yes. And I wanted to close with lament because, one, they make up the largest category of the Psalter. Almost 50% of the Psalter is lament. And, and if the book of Psalms is a poetic history of the life of David and Israel, then their lives were marked by pain and suffering. That's how their lives were. And if the life of David and Israel is pointing toward Jesus, then his life was marked by pain and suffering. Acts 14 says... Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And finally, Romans 8.17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
We talked earlier about the hidden beauty that poetry unveils in the world around us. But the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of Lament, unveil the hidden beauty within the people of God, a beauty that's marked by pain and suffering. And this is precisely what the Psalms are seeking to draw out from within us. Our displeasure with how things are, right? Whether that's personal frustration, whether that's national frustration, local frustration, relational frustration, physical, whatever we're going through, God wants to unearth it. He doesn't want us to bury it down. And just like listening to yesterday or any sad song that you have in your brain as I brought that up brings that out of you, God wants to bring us out of it. And the beauty of the Psalms is, is that these Psalms of lament, how they're structured, it brings it out of us and then takes us to a place of praise. That's the difference. My mixtape of songs in the 90s did not take me to a place of praise. It just kept me in my room with the lights off, strumming my guitar, sad. It didn't take me to a place of praise. It didn't take me to a place of being in the presence of God. It didn't reorient my thinking. What the lament psalms do do is is it forces us to unearth it, and then it reorients our thinking so that we are fixed on Jesus. In the midst of the pain, Psalm 13 starts like this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How many of you in this room are, 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 and you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you are asking that question, how long? How much longer, God? How much longer must my marriage suffer? How much longer will I struggle with this anxiety, this depression? How much longer will I battle this addiction? How much longer will they think of me like this? Will it take, how long will it take for everything to just go back to normal? How long will it be before my kids wander back from their wandering away? When will you relieve me of this? When will you provide me with comfort? When will you show them my side? When will your promises come to fruition? We ask these questions. We want to know. How long, oh Lord? How long? How long is it going to be before one day finally the pain stops. Now we do have an answer to that, but, but I think more often than not to provide that answer for someone in the midst of suffering really comes across as trite often. And it's, 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 the, it's the in the midst of horrific pain, you know, people just lobbing, right? It's, it's actually arm's length sort of comfort when you just lob Bible verses at people, right? Well, we know God works all things out for good, Cool, thanks. But true lament, true engagement in one another's suffering is just being with that person, hugging that person, listening to that person, and praying that as opportunity comes up, 
I can take them to the truth of God's word. But what we often like to do is we do this. And then we say, man, I was such a blessing to them. God's calling us to get dirty, though. He's calling us to get other people's stuff on us. And in thinking about, about one, our church, and as we think about church planting and mission and what that's supposed to look like, it means that as we go out, we're not afraid to get other people's stuff on us. I keep, I mean, I keep bringing it up, and it's not because he's my brother-in-law, but this, this, this addiction recovery group that we have at our church right now, it's, it's such an example of this, Right? It's such an example of getting other people's stuff on us so that we can, we can bring a word of hope, that we can help people move in a, in a direction that they know they shouldn't be going in. And, it's, and, and, I'm, and I praise God for it because it's, it's chaos, right? The addiction epidemic, the opioid epidemic in Ocean County is a form of chaos similar to what we see in Genesis chapter 1 where God speaks order to it. It's precisely what he's calling the church to to look around, observe where the chaos is, and then jump into the midst of it. And as we jump into the midst of it, it's going to tear us apart. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. Broken for us. So that we might be broken for one another. The psalm goes on. Verse 3, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light on my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. He's terrified. He's terrified. He needs help. And he's crying out for help. And he's saying, God, did you forget me? I'm here. Help me. How long is it going to be? And then we transition in verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. Again, here's that word again, your chesed love. You guys got to practice the, the guttural thing, the chesed love. That's what he is remembering. But I have trusted in your chesed love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I think, I think of those who have experienced great suffering. And man, those are the most faithful saints I've ever encountered. Because they actually have encountered Jesus in a way that, that I never could possibly imagine. Jamar Tisby, he's a church historian, he re recently put out a book entitled The Color of Compromise, where he talks about the issues of race in the American church over the last few hundred years. And in one of the chapters, he talks about the posture of lament that has historically marked the black church tradition. And he says that the entire church can learn from believers who have suffered yet still hold on to God's unchanging hand. Those who have suffered much joy, those who have suffered much, excuse me, those who have suffered much find much joy in God's salvation. Those who have suffered much find much joy in God's salvation. And this is why we see in the Psalms of Lament that they end with praise. Remember last week, 
the trajectory that the book of Psalms takes us on. It goes from this deep-seated lament, pain, anguish, and it takes us to a place where everything that has breath praises the Lord. But we need to experience the pain of this world. Romans tells us that we actually don't get the stuff unless we suffer. Those are scary words. And and there's two types of suffering, right? There's suffering that happens to us, that we get, that just happens, and, and we need to We need to walk with that. We need to understand that. And then there's the suffering that we choose. And and God's calling us to be faithful in both. Suffering's gonna happen, guaranteed. But it's not guaranteed that you're gonna choose suffering. And God's calling us to choose suffering. And we do that when we enter into the suffering of our brothers and sisters. When we enter into the suffering of the world around us. That's what it means to lament. It means to carry the load of one another. It means to be broken on behalf of one another. It means to get the dirt and filth and garbage that everyone has onto ourselves so that we come out different. It changes us. There's scars. The scars of Jesus are still there. They're still there. And if we make it out of this world with no scars, we've done something wrong. So Redeemer, I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you to keep your eyes open. Anticipate the needs of those in our midst, in your community groups, in your friend groups. Enter into it with them. And don't do it like this. Don't lob Bible verses over the fence and think that you've done your part. Get dirty. Get messy. And people are going to notice that. There's something about those Redeemer folk. I, can't, I don't know what it is, man, but they, they care for each other in a way that just doesn't make sense. Because that's not how we've been trained, as, especially as Americans, right? Like we are trained to, you know, put up our picket fences. We live in suburbia. We grow our hedges a little higher so the neighbors can't see in, right? That's kind of what we're about, especially in suburban America. But Jesus is calling us to something different that's going to be noticeable. So as you come to the table this morning, as you come partake of the Lord's Supper, I want us to come to this table knowing that you're coming to receive from Jesus, the one who suffered and died on your behalf. And I want you to imagine how, how the grace that we receive from God as we meet with him at the table, how it empowers us now to go forth and suffer on behalf of others. The table is a call to suffering and it's a call to mission. It's a call outward and it's a call to reflect. And Jesus wants us to recognize that as we partake of his body and blood. So as I pray, I'm going to call the ushers forward to distribute the elements, and and let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for 
how you have loved us in a tangible way. Lord, you died on our behalf. You sacrificed everything on our behalf. And Lord, for that we are grateful, Lord. We know that you died, that you suffered, you were whipped, you were scourged, you were mocked. And Father, we don't want those things for us, Father, but you're calling us to those things. And I pray, Lord, that as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that you would impress that upon our hearts, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.